Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. So my name is Catherine McNeely from the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast and we're here today as part of the 16 Days of Activism event to end violence against women. Uh, we have a number of speakers who have come with us today and we're going to have a discussion on domestic violence and abuse. So we have, first of all, um, I'm Dr Charlotte Bishop from the University of Exeter Law School um, and I lecture in criminal law and gender sexuality in law and my research is on the limitations of the legal response to domestic violence. My name is Jan Melia and I am CEO of Women's Aid Federation for Northern Ireland and we provide services for victims of domestic and sexual violence across Northern Ireland itself. My name is Vanessa Bettinson and I am a reader at Leicester de Montfort Law School. Um, my research focuses on the criminal law in particular and how uh, it affects or how it translates domestic violence and abuse within the laws. Primarily I've focused on England and Wales but I've looked at other jurisdictions within the UK as well. So to begin our discussion, what is domestic violence or abuse for someone who isn't familiar with this topic? Um, I would say that it's a range of behaviours. The legal focus and often the societal focus seems to be on physical violence, which is definitely a big part of domestic violence, but it also extends to financial, emotional, verbal, psychological abuse, um, sort of controlling behaviours. Um, and there's a kind of growing awareness, particularly within the social sciences and now moving over to law, that um, it's more of a programme of behaviours where physical violence just one tool to maintain power and control in the relationship. And we would echo that in our services as well. We would see a pattern of behaviours, and certainly in women's aid, we'd, we, we regard it as a deliberate uh, set of behaviours as well, designed to subjugate the victim, in fact. so, And, you know, long-term, uh, we see women that have been subjected to domestic and sexual violence throughout their lives, from early marriage right the way up to 80-year-olds. And also we would say that... In regard to reportage, it takes approximately 35 incidents per uh, per victim before they report. So 35 things happen before someone feels able to pick up the phone. Yes, I would echo the same sentiments about what the behaviour is in terms of domestic violence, particularly combination of both physical and psychological aspects that both, uh, both of you have referred to. And the fact that it can accumulate over a period of time, creating a particularly acute um, distress for the victims themselves. And that can kind of hamper their ability to access help and support often, let alone engage a legal response. One other aspect that comes up when we use this term domestic violence quite often, I think that is quite interesting to have a conversation about, is who we mean by the domestic violence victims a little bit. In the policy in England and Wales, it's quite a... A quite expansive um, term including a lot of different kind of family relationships in particular and having a kind of age range starting from 16 plus so I wondered how how you kind of thought about who domestic violence I mean we would have that same 
issue and I would regard it as an issue here as well in regard to we've currently got a sort of fairly old piece of legislation that deals with domestic violence in the family unit so it would look at you know relationships between fathers and sons and sons and mothers and um, and intimate partner violence is sewn into that but certainly where we come from we would see that you know predominantly for us it's the partner and ex-partner that are committing this violence something like 53 percent of women in our services last year experienced direct um violence from their partners and that echoes stats throughout the world as well where we're seeing this you know one in four women affected by intimate partner violence so i think the law has it tries to cover all bases and in so doing doesn't always meet the needs of the particular needs of victims across the board yeah I would agree with that and I think it can kind of dilute what's happening um particularly when we think about the different power dynamics that are going on in different types of relationships and how they all kind of have such unique needs that we perhaps need to see different types of violence and abuse going on in different types of relationships as well Mm. and what do you think following from that are the main issues in law and policy on domestic abuse today Funding is probably one of the yeah, biggest funding, issues um, and that we, however good the recognition of domestic violence and abuse gets and the legislation is, um, there's still going to be problems because funding is just being cut constantly. Um, one of the other issues that Vanessa and I have written on is um, there's still this focus on physical violence as the most serious harm, so it's used to assess either whether domestic violence exists or at least the severity of it. So even where it's recognised that non-physical abuse is part of the problem, it's not seen as being as serious. Um, And so that can be really problematic as well. Yeah, and to add to that, I would certainly see in terms of, you know, the implementation of legislation, we see that, uh, it you know, a person's life can be chopped into pieces. So if there's a particular incident of violence, then that's treated in, in one way. And then perhaps they've robbed the house as well. And that's treated in another way. And perhaps there's been sexual violence and that's treated in another way. So you get this dissection of the victim's experience across the law. And actually, for me, that's you know, without being able to join the dots and recognise the pattern, the law is inadequate for the task of, of addressing the violence in itself, but also the inequality that underlies that violence as well. Yeah. Law law in itself can't can't work on, on its own to be the like the, mm. the saviour or sort it out or prevent domestic violence, but it does play a key role and that includes the, the criminal justice aspect because that their frontline police officers are there. And I think the problem can be often where there's a mismatch between policy and law. It can be confusing, particularly for criminal justice responses, because they're kind of kind of pulled in two different directions. Which do they follow? One aspect I think is in, interesting and increasingly becoming part of the conversation is the police officer's ability to recognise the types of behaviour mm. that we've talked about. So yes, if there is another feature that might have taken the, uh, the police officer in that direction... Um, and with greater communication and talking about what domestic violence is, police officers are at least, we're able to at least give more instructions to officers to be able to recognise it. Um, so in, in my view, um, it's really important that the criminal does at least try to um, put into effect policy in the way that yeah. other agencies use that policy yeah. too. I mean, I would add to that as well about the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, 
you know, in terms of attrition rates as well, because women come to us and they want to see a prosecution. That's And they're strong women that have survived domestic violence for a number of years and put in those mechanisms to enable them to survive. And they want to see a prosecution. They want this man prosecuted for the behaviour that he's done. But then what you see is attrition rates then. And often what happens is women are regarded to having disengaged with the system when in fact it's the length and the duration and the intricacies of the system that often put people off. So to me that's another version of victim blaming in the sense that what we're saying is it's her fault she's disengaged. So, mm-hmm. But that to me is again about the inadequacy in the current legislation. I think it's really positive to give voice to the fact that women or victims um, do want to see a prosecution because sometimes that gets lost in the debate, mm-hmm. as you quite rightly say. Yeah. It's so much focus on withdrawing from that process. So. Yeah. yeah, we hear a lot about, um, or I get a lot of, why are you looking at how to make prosecution safer and more effective for victims because it may not be the best route to go down. So it's really good to hear that lots of victims do want that. And um, I think maybe something I've, something I've been working on at the moment is how to make the criminal justice system more trauma-informed because I think until we understand the effects on the victim even after they've left the relationship um, in terms of post-traumatic symptoms, it's very hard to support them to engage in the criminal justice system when they're constantly going to be re-traumatised or seen as not being a good witness because they're lacking in credibility because of the effects of trauma. So I think if we're going to say that the criminal law is a really big part of the response and partly because it's such a symbolic thing, the law is such a such a powerful institution that we the law needs to be engaging with this and it's very easy to say that it can't make any difference but actually we need it to and part of that is getting it to understand the dynamics of domestic violence better and also the effect that it has on the victims as well. Mm. I've come across a counter argument about the symbolic nature of the criminal justice system. Quite a lot of people uh, or those that counter it suggest that it's naive to suggest that the criminal law and the criminal justice system can uphold this this notion of what domestic violence is and, and criminalise against it. So I was wondering if you, what, what views you had in respect of that? I think it's really difficult because there's a lot of um, work that's sort of saying that law is part of the problem because it's a very male, it's a masculine, male-dominated institution and its history um, in terms of all of the law is, um, is upholding the values and interests of a very particular type of male and therefore... Is it in the law's interest almost to overcome such a gendered problem? So I do think that's an important aspect. But I think the other thing is it that argument makes it sound like there's that the law is an entity in its own right and it's autonomous and it's not. It's created by people. And so if we can change the mindsets of the people involved, then there's there's clearly potential. And I think it's too easy to disengage and say that we shouldn't involve the law. It's not enough in its own right. It can't tackle it on its own, but it can be, I think, part of the part of the response and it's really what does it say if we disengage from it that's even worse what message does it send out to say oh look let's not look to the criminal law anymore actually I think that's more damaging potentially mm-hmm. I mean I worry about you know the legal subject is that actually the male legal mm-hmm. subject so I worry about that in the law and you know I worry about how the law is able to stretch itself to fit around women's lives as well. And currently what we know is that that's not been the case. It's not been the case in the past and it's certainly not the case still. I mean, we're seeing a slight shift, obviously, in regard and that in regard to things like coercive control and certainly in regard to some of the international legislation. But again, I always, the underlying thing for me is if until it starts to produce results, then ultimately 
it has to be called into question. I mean, interestingly, in Scotland, they have a gendered policy on domestic and sexual violence. And what we're seeing actually is conviction rates increasing across the board in regard to rape and in regard to domestic That's violence really as well. That's really interesting and really nice to know. I mean, there's not, there's not a piece of research done on it, but there's certainly a correlation since the... Um, and that was really caused by, I would say, a, you know, a critical mass of women in the government there where women were actually putting this question on the table for the first time in large numbers rather than it being a marginalised issue which often women's issues tend to be. And it's very difficult to um, put forward a gendered approach to the issue um, because it's that constant cry of um, what about what about men which is fair enough and there are male victims but I think if we shift the focus onto it being gendered rather than sex we can encompass lots of different relationships that have the same kinds of dynamics but also we have to see the reality and the prevalence and that you know it's kind of given the prevalence it doesn't make sense to have a non-gendered approach and I guess that we're seeing conviction rates going up in Scotland and that's quite encouraging although less so for our legislation in this country or in England and Wales yeah. Yes Scotland does offer a refreshing change a different landscape it's interesting that there seems to be quite a lot of positive um, implementation and changes in the criminal justice system there um, more so than we're seeing in England and Wales and the tensions seem to be slightly different so one example of what might be a part to play in, in this sort of good relationship in the criminal justice system in Scotland is there's a good communication or at least it seems there's a good communication between the police and their, and their prosecution authorities which we don't see reflected in England and Wales and that obviously helps yeah. in line with that there's also a clear route as to when uh, agencies and support agencies are or kind of requested to get involved in each case. So there's kind of this supported approach. In England and Wales, there's, there's again, like tensions as to who should be dealing with situations at different times. And there certainly seems to be tension between police and prosecutors, with recognition seeming to be fairly high with police officers now that they have got an offence in which that details all of these kind of activities. And yet prosecutions for that new offence don't particularly seem to be that high in, in, in respect of that. So, yeah, that's mm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's something that in currently in Northern Ireland uh, we've been working on, the coercive control legislation. Uh, it's in draft form, but without obviously without a government, we can't progress anything at all. Uh, but, you know, we, we watch, we, our eye is always on what happened in, in England and Wales and in Scotland as well to see, you know, to see where... The mistakes are being made in many respects, Very and that's wise. positive yeah. in a way. And you know, in, in Scotland, what their I mean, their bill on coercive control is in draft at the minute. Mm. It's going through Parliament, and that focuses specifically on intimate partner violence. Yeah. Which for us, I mean, I don't think we're going to get that here in Northern Ireland. We'll focus on the family itself, but actually, you know, what we'll see in I think Scotland are leading the way in regard to that. And actually, within that framework, I would certainly be arguing the case for something that was focused on intimate violence in and of itself. I agree. One thing, I mean, it's, the Scottish approach doesn't completely disregard the family unit as well. They've incorporated it in quite, an, well, if it was to go ahead, they've incorporated it in quite an, a refreshing way in that if the child is there, it's an aggravating feature to the offence or the it, you know, also pointing out that the, the abusive behaviour could be directed at a child of the primary victim yep. as well. So yeah, it's it's certainly offered a refreshing approach and doesn't sort of then lead to competing 
types of harm and different family relationships. So it's clearer to understand, yeah. I think. And it's easier for people to understand. It's even easier for people on the receiving end of the law to understand, both as you know, operatives, as police officers, and also in court systems, but also in regard to victims themselves as well. So, so for those who aren't familiar with this um, legislation and these developments, what is coercive control and legislation relating to it? So the legislation um, falls under Section 76 of the Serious Crime Act, and it criminalises controlling or coercive behaviour in an intimate or family relationship. Um, and it looks for um, behaviour by a perpetrator that has a serious effect on the victim, and that can either be through um, causing them to fear that violence will be used against them or having um, a substantial adverse effect on their day-to-day -day activities. And it's that latter part that... Um, researchers and activists and women's organisations have been emphasising for, for decades now, which is the central harm of domestic violence, or at least of the most serious type of domestic violence, coercive control. Um, so it would be where there are um, behaviours going on every day that are leading the victim to be controlled. So it'll be things like petty demands and rules on how they conduct kind of household tasks and their daily activities. Um, there'll be maybe use of symbolic violence where, um, for example, messages being sent and the victim has to guess the significance of them. And if not, there'll be either um, physical violence or sexual violence, but also a lot of threatened negative consequences, things like humiliation, um, maybe threatening to take children away from their mother. That happens a lot. So what often happens is there might start off being physical violence or sexual violence used in order to make the victim comply with the threats. But after a while, that less is needed because um, a victim would probably only, hopefully only need to experience one really serious beating, I guess, or being raped once they would com comply most of the time without that. So it ends up with what's been referred to as a state of siege where um, the victim is in just a state of hypervigilance, constantly trying to second-guess the perpetrator's demands and expectations so they can conform with them and then avoid those negative consequences. But but uh, the law doesn't quite reflect uh, all yes. of no, that. No, it although, although that yeah. is coercive control, there are limitations with the legislation because it doesn't actually spell out what coercive or controlling behaviour is. So the fallback would be to look at policy uh, in terms of that, which does in England and Wales detail quite a wide range of behaviours, which, as Charlotte points out, doesn't involve humiliation, subordination or doing things, which tries to get the victim to bend to the will of the of the offender yeah well, what's problematic with the new offense is that we need to move away from this sort of idea that domestic violence is about incidents either of yeah. physical violence or other things because when we do that there's autonomy between those incidents and the victim can leave apparently so when we see it as a program it shifts the focus onto what is the perpetrator doing to keep her there um and we've seen the new offenses still being seen as um, it's sort of being referenced in relation to physical violence, but also incidents of coercive controlling behaviour, which doesn't make sense because it's a pattern. Um, and so it doesn't seem to have facilitated a shift onto the programmatic nature of the abuse in the way that perhaps we were hoping it would. It's a huge cultural shift in the way that we deal with, you know, for officers and for the criminal justice system mm. as a whole in the way that we've been traditionally dealing with this yeah. issue. And incidents are the key for the current, you know, for the yeah. current process. Because we abstract it from the social context and when you abstract something, it does become about incidents and that's what the criminal law is set up 
to deal with. And actually, when you talk to women on the ground, it's those those coercive elements of the violence that are the most that predominate their experience. You know, they would say without any doubt that the emotional violence is far more difficult to recover from in the longer term. So, I mean, and, and that's what the new legislation, the coercive control legislation is trying to do is get to the heart of that matter. But again, within the framework of legislation, that's not an easy task. And the maximum sentence, sorry, the maximum sentence is, is only five years for this. Whereas if it was physical violence, we'd be looking at grievous bodily harm and a maximum life sentence. And so five years, given that they'll live with the long term effects forever, probably doesn't really reflect the harm. Sorry, Vanessa, I interrupted you. That's OK. Um, it, when you were speaking about how it's the offence tries to reflect the kind of getting at the core of what coercive control is, and it doesn't quite do it because it falls back on instance. Uh, again, it's kind of that failing to be able to get to the heart of the gendered side of things because it is gender playing a role as to how resilient or what means people have to be able to, to leave that relationship or to move on from the, from the harm that, that's caused. For example, just looking financially, uh, there are restrictions, isn't there, that um, in terms of many women haven't got the same access to... Uh, the jobs and uh, savings that a male victim might have. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in, us, in the current austerity uh, push as well, you know, we're seeing that that's had a, a massive impact on women's lives already and not not just women in domestic violence situations but generally and so that then acts as another barrier then for women to, for women to be able to leave their coercive relationship even when they've got to the point of feeling that they you know that they can in fact do that so it's important to continue to take a gendered approach to domestic abuse I would say absolutely. And without it, I mean, we talk about gender neutrality as if that's going to solve the problems of the world. But actually, we live in a gendered world. And that's the reality of the situation for women and for children and for men as well. You know, when we look at, you know, in male victims, I mean, you know, what we tend to see is that the perpetrator, the male perpetrator tends to adhere to gendered stereotypical, you know, hegemonic norms about, you know, regarding masculinity and what masculinity is all about and that's within same-sex relationships and within heterosexual relationships too so ultimately if we're not tackling gender and gender inequality we're not going to actually shift this in the direction that we want it to go which is the eradication of domestic and sexual violence. But I do think it's really difficult to achieve in, in legislation itself because it's just an area which we're so used to not seeing it gen gendered uh, or it, it using a gender-neutral form, and uh, I reflect on this at great length, and I still find it difficult to see what that uh, gendered approach, that, what the legislation would look like. Um, so maybe it's a case of policy having to, to sort of lead the way and help shape the law that comes out yeah. of it, which sounds like... Yeah, uh, I mean, in Scotland, sort of what's happened is the, because the policy is gendered, and, and it doesn't exclude male victims at all, which no. is positive, and as it should be, but because it's gendered, it understands that, you know, it situates violence in regard to gender inequality. And actually, it talks about the power balance imbalance between male and female. And I think that that's changed practice a little bit in Scotland, because what you're beginning to see is that's informing people's understanding of what's actually going on, rather than being, you know, this flatlined tit for tat experience where it could be either you know either he's the victim or she's the victim mm. he hit her she hit him you know those kind of things then in fact it informs the knowledge that people have about it 
That's a fair reflection. I've been to the Specialist Domestic Abuse Court in Scotland and I think it, it, it kind of bears out what you're saying. It takes there's a lot of the issues which we see in England and Wales where there's a focus on the victim being support, like being part of the process is taken away by the approach in, in Scotland and it's, it doesn't matter what yeah. the victim sort of seemingly wishes, the, the, the prosecuting authorities sort of take the lead on that. And um, it... it seems to be a healthier environment in which these kind of the discourse kind of carries on whereas it can be as you say the tit for tat yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. something very yeah. familiar you see in and the you course. know for me the gendered approach i mean women are off gender the term is often conflated with, with women anyway but that's a mistake in and of itself and what that is that's about you know still not discussing the gender of men because most violence in the world whether it's domestic or sexual violence is conducted by men and we need to be asking questions as to why that is, and what is it about our gendered framework that encourages that within specific individual men? Mm, I agree with that. Yeah, and for me, there are kind of two two aspects to taking a gendered approach. The first is that it enables us to tackle the root cause of what's going on, so gender inequality at a deeper level, because all of the stuff we're talking about is still looking at the kind of surface of the problem and trying to help individual people who are experiencing this. And so we can kind of shift on to um, looking at the bigger discourses and norms that, that um, perpetuate the problem. But also gendered approach to coercive control in particular, I, I don't think you can separate the tactics of coercive control from gender. Um, and it makes it much easier for us to recognise um, what coercive control is and when it's happening, if we understand gender in the way that the perpetrator will exploit gender norms and expectations. So lots of the behaviours that are um, characteristic of coercive control just merge with what the kind of spectrum of what's normal and expected um, in an intimate relationship anyway. So it makes it very hard for the victim to know they're being, being abused and controlled. And then obviously for friends, family, police um, and prosecutors and so on to see it as, um, to see it as violence and abuse because it can look very normal and lots of the lots of the things would be could be seen as kind of signs of love and affection and often particularly young girls interpret jealousy um and kind of male proprietoriness as being a kind of a good thing and it shows how desirable they are because that's that's what's seen we think of the twilight films and that's exactly what we're seeing male obsession power and control seen as romance and exciting and everything so i think if we have a gendered approach and an understanding that goes beyond this but kind of in society generally then it does hopefully help us in in those ways really yeah social media kind of has shown so much more what coercive control is just by giving people a different tool um, in part it's emphasized even more just because people are so connected to their their phone that they don't want to be able to they don't want to be forced to change uh, their you know their facebook page or their snapchat or whatever it is as well so then that creates another difficulty how does the victim then avoid or not be in a situation where they're easily contactable yeah and um and using kind of things that would be seen as very romantic i heard of a young girl whose partner she'd been away from for a long time after five years of abuse and um he then sent her a photo outside her place where she lives and it had a teddy bear a bar of chocolate and a box of paracetamol with it and it's like most people that would have just thought oh look that's really nice perhaps they're planning a night out and then um some paracetamol for the hangover but obviously she knows that um it's because he's saying i'm going to come and get you again and so you can really see the way all of those sort of romance symbols are exploited and manipulated and 
um, and the use of kind of messaging, instant messaging and so on as well to make it people so much more accessible. Mm. So if someone maybe listening to this podcast thinks that they might be experiencing domestic abuse, what would you say to them? What kind of support is available for them? Well, here in Northern Ireland, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, there's a, a whole uh, array of support available to uh, fe- women and to men as well. So, uh, And the way to access that, the simple way to access that is to call the 24-hour domestic and sexual violence helpline, which is, um, you know, or for male and female victims. And I would say, you know, I mean, we have refuge services here, like like other parts of other jurisdictions. We've got refuge services, we've got outreach services, we've got one-to-one, we've got counselling, you know, and a very variety of organisations provide that. So essentially, you know, to access those, the simplest way is through the helpline. I think the key thing is that people should try and talk about it, be brave enough to sort of say what it is and hopefully have a... A, response, a good response when they do that. Some people are worried about consequences, aren't they, of, of speaking out because they might be used against them, but I quite agree if they can reach out to a helpline or somebody they know is the first step, then that's yeah. to be encouraged. I mean, there's still an awful lot of stigma attached and because yeah. of the victim blaming that threads through the entire system and, you know, not just the criminal justice system, but the media as well and the societal attitudes as well, then... You know, the the trick is not, I think, is not to internalise it, not to yes. see yourself as, as to blame, not to wonder what it is that you've done to cause this. And actually then talking to someone, friends, people often talk to friends, but if you've not got someone, you know, or, you know, a friend that you can confide in, then certainly there are ways now that we can do this. You know, you can have that conversation without anyone else knowing as a starting point, which is quite useful, really, you know, compared, you know, compared to in the past, we've got the helpline is one example, web chats, another, you know, those kind of services are ever increasing. So, And I guess also if there are people listening that think they might be friends with someone that's experiencing this, I guess just to be open and to maybe understand that their friend probably will blame themselves, but it's still kind of helping them to shift that focus and let them know they're there for them and not to feel impatient if it takes them a really long time to feel like they can go beyond them as the source of support and kind of reach out to services and so on, because it can take a really long time to build that up. And non-judgment is the key Mm -hmm. to that response as well. I mean, we would certainly work with women who, when they talk about rape, for example, in a student situation in a population of friends that that then splits the entire group and you have this you know this different set of reactions that then can isolate the victim even further because friends fall out because they don't believe because that because they don't think that he is capable of you know all of those kind of dynamics come into play as well so I think non-judgment is the is the key to anyone whose friend is you know going is uh, has confided in them. So thank you very much to Charlotte, Jan and Vanessa for joining us today for our podcast discussion. If you'd like more information about domestic abuse and the support services available, please check the programme notes for this podcast. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville and Rachel Colleen, and our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Catherine McNeely, Jan Melia, Vanessa Bettinson and Charlotte Bishop for today's episode. You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at QUB Law Pod. You can also find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Colleen. This was Law Pod.